Welcome to SoupX Radio, a weekly talk show devoted to startups and early-stage entrepreneurship, venture investing, and small businesses in general. For more information, including past broadcasts, future episodes, and our radio network affiliates, please visit our website, www.supex.org. That's S-U-P-X.org. And please remember to follow us on Twitter, at TheSupex. That's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. I'm your host, Bob Fitz, and our guest today is self-described vagipreneur Rachel Braunsure. And with a description like that, I think you'll clearly see that Rachel is not shy. She's one of my favorite people. Uh, we've had the pleasure of having her speaking at uh, SUPEX in the past, and this will be a uh, fascinating interview. She's a really interesting entrepreneur and a marketing expert. I'm not going to spoil the fun, though. I'll let uh, Rachel tell our audience about herself. So this should be a fun ride. So stay tuned. Rachel, it's always good to be with you. Thanks so much for being our guest this week. My pleasure, and thank you for the warm welcome. So we've got plenty of time to talk, and I really want the audience to get to know you. So out of curiosity, Rachel, let's start a, a few years ago. Where did you go to school, and how did you get your start in your career, and why did you start? Why did you choose the path that you did? Well, the first few are uh, easier to answer, and they were quite a few years ago. I undergrad, I went to Duke, and I got a BA in psychology with a certificate in human development. I went to um, public relations firm from there, and then I left to go to Stanford Business School. Uh, right after business school, I went to Johnson and Johnson, and from that point on, um, those relationships and that learning was really a foundation of so much of my career in terms of the relationships. I was there a short time, but have always had a J&J component in my life in terms of the people I work with, the companies I work for. Um, the J&J network spreads far and wide, so those people wind up in other amazing places as well. So that is where I got my training in really building businesses and building brands, which is what I do. Um, the Vagipreneur piece uh, came a bit later when my business partner and I bought an asset that was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts that was clinically proven to increase arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. All good stuff um, available commercially. Uh, we were in 2000 Walmarts. We sold direct to consumer and a very clever, in my mind, a very clever journalist in the process of interviewing us came up with the title Vagipreneur, which I define as a person in the business of female health and maybe even more specifically female sexual health. And I liked it so much and it always got a giggle and at the same time was so descriptive that it got people's attention and it was easy to explain and it was a nice headline. So now I trademarked it. <laughs> um, it, is, it is part of my brand and I really focus now for large and small companies in the world very broadly of female health and wellness. So think arousal, think fertility, infertility, menopause, reproduction, disease transmission, um, urinary analysis tests, anything related to a woman's overall health that tends to be around her reproductive system. So, you know, I've done everything. I've touched businesses that have been on women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes, hair care, skin care, psoriasis, um, foot fungus, hemorrhoids, you name it, the good, bad, and the ugly. So I've spent a lot of time learning to understand what motivates women in different spaces of their life, in different categories. And my, my ultimate objective 
with all my work is to drive business growth. How do you get more people to buy uh, buy your product or your service or engage in an interaction with your company versus doing nothing or engaging with somebody else? So obviously, Simpre is a huge topic for us to talk about because it's fascinating and you have some really amazing anecdotes and insights to share. And, and a good portion of our audience is female entrepreneurs. And obviously, we have you know, a male following as well. Before we dive into Simpre super deeply, thinking back on... J and J and the experiences there versus you know kind of going off into Sempre. What were kind of some of the the bigger things that you learned at J and J that helped you uh, when you went into the small entrepreneurial world? And what were a couple that were like it just would not apply? It just with some of the things that maybe you had to pivot because you were like, okay, that that's just not going to work in this kind of environment. Because uh, you're not, you're similar to me and many of the entrepreneurs that are listening today in that you may have gotten your training or you did, you did get your training in a large organization and then you decided to go do something more entrepreneurial. And that's got to be a scary step for a lot of people, but you've succeeded at it. And I'm, I'm interesting for, interested for our audience to learn from you in that process. So it wasn't a, a fast leap from working in corporate America to running my own business. So when I, um, Left J&J, I went to a consulting company that focused on projects for J&J. They were smaller, still working for large companies. Then I had my own, which I still have, consulting business um, for about the past 15 years. And then when the women's health opportunity came, we really looked at it as the perfect storm. It was like mana from heaven in terms of <laughs> um, uh, in terms of a marketing challenge. So at the time, we were looking at the business. There were no products approved for women in this space. There had been 35 active clinical programs that had gone down to two. There was no vocabulary around female health. Uh, for instance, you know, we'd been trained in the words of Viagra, which are, you know, bigger, longer, stronger. And women think about, talk about, um, communicate about sex entirely differently. They don't think of it as a performance activity. So it really was much more gradual, but always in this space of understanding what would motivate people to buy, engage, and to do things. So I don't think I gave it as much thought because it was natural. Mm -hmm. And when So it got easier and easier, and I went from successively smaller organizations still servicing large organizations, and then the piece that I added after running my own um, venture-backed company was really understanding the operational side. And I don't want to forget the first part of your question, which is what what applied from your learning um, in a large company versus what doesn't. So the first piece is the value of relationships, mm -hmm. the importance of team, and the cross-functional nature of everything you do. Just take the most basic product to get it on the shelf. Someone has to do the research. Someone has to write the paper. Someone has to get it to regulatory. Someone has to design the packaging. Someone has to make the packaging. Someone has to write all the marketing content and develop the advertising. At J&J, &J, I was able to get really a full perspective on what was required to create a product. And while I was focused really on the marketing and the business building and the, the finance, you know, from an expense management standpoint, mm -hmm. I had to figure out and know how to work effectively with all of those groups. So I would say far and away, understanding how to build relationships, understanding how important they are, 
understanding that those relationships are the way you get things done in a large company mm-hmm. and understanding that you have to be very clear about the culture and how and if you can be successful in it. Those were all spectacularly helpful skills that I feel that I took with me. And one of the reasons, it was very interesting when we were raising money, and I, I know we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, one of the interesting things was people saw our corporate experience and said, wait, can you be operators? And both my business partner and I had been operators in the past. And it's unusual. People don't generally trust the idea that you can be a big company person and understand how to be scrappy. So the biggest difference going into an entrepreneurial environment um, or my own company is there's no safety net. Now, I happen to like that. I like and that. I mean, I mean, literally and figuratively. So I like the idea that I'm in charge of my financial future and my destiny. That being said, would it sometimes be nice to have this huge corporate infrastructure underneath me um, taking away some of the, you know, some of the grind? Absolutely. But the biggest issue is you have to really like the business that you're in. And I, above everything, think my business, all my businesses have been about selling, whether it's selling an idea, selling a process, selling a relationship. And that is critically important. And that translates in my mind across organizations, you know, raising venture capital, you know, the speed dating of finance, you know, you have to understand the room you're in, you have to read the room, you have to figure out um, what their issues are. Obviously, you do all the work before you get in the room to understand in the context of what you're going into. All those skills are important, whether you're in a 10,000 person organization, or, you know, you're sitting in your garage. Yeah, I went from a very large insurance company to about a five-person uh, development shop in the real estate industry. And I've, my experience was similar to yours. Uh, at first, you know, there was the issue of, you know, I was used to, well, you call the marketing department or the PR department or the accounting or blah, blah, blah. And, they, and it, you know, because you're plugged, you're J&J and you're, you know, like you've got this, you know, counterpart who's basically at your level or something, a VP, SVP. And, hey, you know, we need to do so-and-so. And then they plug in. There's this whole, like, infrastructure that helps things move along. And, of course, you have interest, you know, you have issues in corporations about swimming bureaucracies and hidden genities and all that stuff. But, you know, when I went from that to like a four person shop, I was like, oh, my gosh, I am the accounting department. I am the HR department. And (laughs) but it's it was also empowering, which it sounds like it was to you. You that it was an amazing experience to have that responsibility and and passion that could help you do that. Yeah. And and you bring up a very good point when we've started companies or when we started um, the last company. I was uh, the VP of uh, office supplies because I had a Costco card. I also <laughs> served as the VP travel because I was in charge of all the travel. And one of the things that we did, and then I still feel is critical to how I work with people, is anytime I'm going to be in a relationship with somebody, a working relationship, certainly when they're working for me, you know, I want to know that they're going to make the donuts. And I don't know if that reference is is applicable or meaningful to everybody on the phone, but years ago they had this Dunkin' Donuts commercial Time a campaign. To make the donuts. And, sorry, <laughs> yeah, and the guy shows up like Mr. Donut Maker shows up every morning at six a.m. and makes the donuts right. because Dunkin' Donuts doesn't run those eight 
<laughs> thousand storefronts and 17,000 flavors of coffee without someone coming in and making the donuts. So I do believe that you have to be very willing to make the donuts. And, and if you don't like making the donuts, maybe your, your company will grow big enough that someone else will make the donuts or you'll have a donut making department. But you have to be willing to um, get your hands dirty and do what needs to be done to grow your business. Uh, it's hilarious that you use that reference. I have a younger wife, and I'll occasionally say, time to make the donuts, and I'm certain she has no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> she wasn't around for the commercial, but I remember it well. So, Sempre, uh, out of curiosity, how did you find the asset, or how did the asset find you? A venture capitalist um, saw this business plan mm -hmm. and said, and, and a healthcare investor, uh, they had never shown me a business plan before and said, this isn't for us. This doesn't fit our investment parameters, but maybe you and Mary, my longstanding business partner would like to look into it. So we looked at it as a consulting project. Um, at the time we were introduced to the company, it was a very complex financial structure. There were 135 individual shareholders, oh, goodness. Um, but we were just very intrigued. So we stayed, um, we stayed on top of the category and became fascinated by how wide open it was. It was like the, you know, I said mana from heaven. It was the, the wild, wild west, whatever analogy you want to use <laughs> in terms of how do you create this? How do you create a conversation around female sexual response and satisfaction? Um, how do you compete? Who are you talking to? Who's buying? What does your target customer look like? Is she different when she's, or he different when he's in the store versus um, direct to consumer? And at some period of, of time, about uh, probably 60 days later, the asset became available and we bought it. We didn't think about it. We had never raised, we thought about it. We had never raised venture capital before. And I'm one of those people who I didn't want to call people to say, can you give 25 cents, you know, for the bake sale at the kid's school. But I didn't mind going in and saying, can you give us, you know, several million dollars to finance this growth strategy of this huge opportunity where the, just the metrics of the business in terms of the unmet need and the opportunity we're enormous. Uh, so we call ourselves accidental badger. So we'll talk about Simpre and what it is in a second, but I'm, I'm interested in like the, the investment banking side of this transaction. Um, when you went to raise the capital to purchase the asset, uh, how difficult was it to find the financing? You know, there might be some revisionist history. The first amount of capital to buy the asset was relatively easy. Mm -hmm. We um, were introduced to someone who was interested in the space, um, had looked at the company several times before, uh, liked our approach to building the business, and that um, firm became our partner. Okay. That was the easiest part. Yeah, I was going to say, that's After pretty that unusual. Picture, it's it, usually much harder. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Right. Just the, but the starting point. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, friends, families, and fools. Uh, <laughs> when we went to raise... Um, traditional venture capital. And, and the deal was structured around unless we could raise real venture capital, they weren't going to be our partner. Uh, so there was, you know, there was a sort of noose around our neck. But picture 2008, the financial bottom is falling out of the world. Yeah, you know, Lehman, the companies are going collapsed. bankrupt left and right. Lehman has collapsed. And we go as two women who they consider first-time entrepreneurs, even though we had been running a successful agency for 10 years at that point, talking about vaginas. So, you know, it was, we call it, it was, it was like the triple threat. 
we were women. They considered us first-time entrepreneurs, and we're talking about vaginas. And so re- let's remind the you audience. Know, if you what... don't have the sense of humor. Sorry, but real quickly, remind the audience again now what Simpre is, because I kind of glossed over it. That's my fault. So Sim- the product, mm-hmm. the product is was was Zestra. Um, the company we've since sold the company. Uh, it was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts that's mm-hmm. clinically proven to increase arousal, desire, and satisfaction. So it's topically applied to the lady parts. Mm-hmm. It starts to work within uh, three to five minutes of application, and basically the concept behind how it works is it increases the sensitivity of the nerve endings. Okay. So you feel things more deeply, stronger, faster, um, more intensely. Okay. So, you know, certainly fun to talk about, uh, but really quite challenging to raise money around for a whole bunch of reasons. So... <laughs> Let's know, hear them. <laughs> we, we had this experience... Okay. This is so my we favorite this story. Experience I've, heard, where, I've heard the story. I love this. <laughs> okay. We, yeah. We go into... We have... 13 meetings scheduled in Silicon Valley. And for the folks who have never been there, as an entrepreneur, at least from the perspective of this entrepreneur, it's basically a sea of nondescript buildings, one after the other, with investors who, after some period of time, I know they all have their different investment thesis, they all have a different approach, they have a different, um, they have different partners, they have a different way they might like to structure a deal. But when you're doing 13 in a period of two days, sort of the the, it, the nuances are washed away and it becomes <laughs> sort of this one big morass. So we go into the first meeting and the first question we're always asked was, how is this different than Viagra? And, you know, we knew the business, we knew the science, we'd worked in women's health. And so we gave the clinical answer, which is Viagra basically works as a vasodilator and it increases the blood flow. Um, the male genitals work as a hydraulic pump. So when the blood flows in, the pump pumps up and, and, and the system works. Right. You know, for women, the process is quite different. And the increase of blood flow in and of itself isn't sufficient enough to get to the endpoints that you're talking about in terms of a increased arousal, desire, and satisfaction. Okay, so we're giving that long-winded answer. It's our first, it's our first step at. And we don't get too far in the discussion. You know, we can't really get them going to talk about the business model, um, to talk about the category, to talk about the fact that 40% more women have sexual concerns and difficulties than men do. And the Viagra market had literally exploded to multi-billions. And the women's market, if you counted every random online (laughs) product you could think of, you could barely scrape together a half a billion dollar business. So we didn't get to that discussion in the first round. We go into the second one. And the first and the first question in this room is, what does it do for him? Because we had a clinical that was a, a, a fairly uh, well-designed clinical in terms of we had 13 clinical sites. It was double-blind placebo-controlled. It was run at some of the best sexual health centers um, in the country. And there were results that talked about increased satisfaction, which sometimes is code for orgasm, but not always. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to that in a minute. That goes around to the, the, the language, how different the language is for men and women. So we said, well, actually, what the research determined is that her satisfaction was increased in terms of how she felt, how quickly she became aroused, how desirous she felt, and how likely she was to feel satisfied, whatever that meant in her personal description, and much less about his satisfaction. And anecdotally, what we believe his satisfaction was around is feeling like his partner was more satisfied or maybe feeling like a more skilled partner. 
tell her answering the question. Still didn't get to the discussion of the business model or the product or how it worked or why we thought we were capable of taking this business and growing it. So we now have 11 more. You know, we haven't we haven't so, even so you're, sniffed around a dollar. So so you're over two now and you're over two now and you're just not getting a lot of interesting questions. The meetings sort but of kind of die. I mean, not it's... even it wasn't even a foul ball. It was total strikeouts. It was like mm. three strikes. You're out. No walks. Didn't foul the ball. Didn't even appear to be in the game. Not even interesting questions. They're just the whatever kind of conversations. Eh. You know? Right. And yeah. the truth is, we got the same questions over and over again. So I said to my business partner, can we try something? You know, at the rate we're going, and we had never <laughs> over <laughs> Um And again, so we have 11 more to go. Can we try something different? Can we try something maybe more aggressive, maybe more shocking, and see if it works? And, you know, we agreed. We're partners. We agree on all the big decisions. And I'm one of these people who never has cash. I do everything on a credit card because I'm compulsive enough. I like to be able to track everything. I can tell you what I spent on groceries in May of 1994. Not that I ever look at it, but I but, have but all these could. records. You could, by God, if we asked you, right? I could. I could. <laughs> I could. I could have in under 30 seconds. But I happen to have a $100 bill on my wallet, which to this day cannot explain other than divine intervention. A rare day. So I take the $100 <laughs> bill and explain to Mary, you know, I suggest to Mary that this is what I think we should try. And I take a $100 bill, I walk into a room, and we don't introduce ourselves, we don't put up the slides, I slam the $100 bill on the table. And I say, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category or female sexuality that we can't answer, this $100 is yours. If anyone makes a double entendre or a sexual innuendo that makes us blush or makes us feel uncomfortable, this $100 is yours. I pause, pregnant pause, which is, uh, you know, pun intended. <laughs> and I said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Let's talk about the business model. There's a great lesson and there, there was for total people. silence in the room. <laughs> yeah. there, was, there was silence in the room. And all of a sudden, my interpretation, I didn't interview people post-game, but my interpretation was, that it was clear we were serious. It was clear we were not embarrassed. It was clear we were there to talk about the business, that we understood the business, that we knew that there was some embarrassment and some you know, titillating aspects to this topic, but that we were prepared to talk about how we were going to make the money. And it changed the entire dynamic. It gave me personally a sense of confidence about, you know what, you can figure this out. Mm -hmm. This playing field wasn't set up necessarily in a way that was going to make it easy. And you got up there and you got a piece of the ball. And ultimately, you know, we raised quite a bit of money. But I look at that moment as a turning point and how we thought about the business, how we ran the business, how we presented ourselves, um, how we built the story of the company, how we use PR um, to build sales. And, you know, as many times... As I've told that, mm -hmm. I always have the same reaction. I really, I just think, wow, I'm, I don't know how I thought of it, but I'm glad I thought of it. Well, I think because it really changed the dynamic. Uh, look, and I, it, I think irrespective of the product or your gender, I think there's a great lesson there for all the entrepreneurs that are listening to us, and that is, is that 
you're going to go into you know pitch meetings where you're you're struggling to resonate uh and the fact that you could on the fly while you're going from meeting to meeting and you recognized it quickly and decided okay we're going to try this and it wasn't like you just threw spaghetti against the the fridge i mean it was an intelligent decision <laughs> but 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 it was it was it was a it, there's a that's a great lesson you know if if your pitch isn't working and you've got a certain number of meetings don't go through all thirteen just stubbornly sticking to the same pitch change it up I mean that was right. a, uh, very smart of you to work it I think it's also really intelligent uh, that the other dynamic is you took control of the room uh, in a very confident way and it sounds to me I, I wasn't obviously in the other two meetings but it sounds to me that. The subject matter of the dynamics of the prior meeting, prior meetings made it, it was just, there wasn't a good tone and you seem to kind of establish one. I think that's very cool. I'm assuming also, I mean, I'm guessing that you are pitching to a sea of dudes. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, isn't that? For the most part. Right. And this would have been, what, 15 years, how many years ago would have this been? This would have been? Um, It was uh, nine years ago. Okay. So when we first started, we obviously were fundraising for a couple of years. Right. But so, we, our first venture out was in 2008. Right. So the, the, the Valley's not exactly known for being incredibly diverse to begin with, even though it's trying, and much less so essentially a decade ago. So you're essentially pitching to men about a female sexual health product. Uh, so you kind of short, uh, you fast forwarded on the story, but can you give us a little more insight to, I mean, what were the stupider things or, or the that that happened i mean because or awkward i mean this that even for respectful men that would have had to have been a little uncomfortable at times tell us a little bit more about the dynamics beyond your your the bold one of some of the stuff that went on in those conversations well it's funny i'm working on a, a book called orgasmic leadership and really highlighting i've interviewed you know dozens of uh, founders about their experience building businesses in this space not just sexuality but any aspect of, you know, female reproduction, female health, whether it's menstruation, whether it's fertility, you know, there, there's a whole gamut. And one of the questions I ask everybody is, what is the most ridiculous question someone has asked you? Because many, most people don't wake up and say, I'm going to run a female sexual health business. I've yet to find the person um, after meeting hundreds of people through the process of this who said, yes, I always knew I wanted to run a female arousal business. My lifelong um, dream. <laughs> yeah. So I've heard, I've heard amazing, amazingly aggressively stupid things that have been said to other people and, you know, have been said to me, but a couple ones that are just still shocking in how silly they are. So, you know, people will say to us, well, this is a niche market. Well, 31% of men have ED. It's an $8 billion market. 43% of women at some point in their life have sexual concerns and difficulties. How is that a niche? Where, you know, the implication is they're thinking, well, this certainly couldn't be me. I'm such a skilled craftsman um, <laughs> in the bedroom. You know, this, this, this can't be as prevalent because I don't know about it. And one of the things that's fascinating about this space relative to the dozens of other categories I've worked in is it is a category that people don't talk about. You don't talk. And I, again, I'm talking age specific. You know, we're talking about people. Our target was people in committed um, relationships, 35 plus. 
So, you know, the college age kids, millennials, there are plenty of people who don't fit this cat, don't fit that description. But, but for the most part, when you put those, that demographic profile together, those people from tons of research were not talking about sex. And part of the reason was, you know, what are you going to, you're going to talk to your mother about it or your aunt or your sister. It felt so personal and it feels so personal. And oftentimes people would describe their concern about bringing up the conversation. You know, if I come, if a man wants to buy this and wants to discuss it with his wife, is she going to interpret that he thinks she's lacking somehow or vice versa? If she brings it up, is he going to look at it as a judgment of his performance? So what was really crazy is how little people understood about female sexuality. There's this great slide that we always used, which had basically, think of an old time radio that's cut in the middle horizontally. And in the top, there's one button and it says men. And underneath, there's like 17 buttons and it says women, just to communicate the relative complexity of the, of the response system. Mm -hmm. And it is incredibly more complex. But what was stunning is how little anyone, little idea anyone had. My one of my favorite moments had to be we walk into a meeting and, you know, a guy who read us his resume or presented his resume of, you know, how brilliant he was and how many businesses he had taken public six minutes after he invested and blah, blah, blah. He opens the packet of the product and he rubs it in his hands, you know, like he's applying hand lotion. And he looks at us 30 seconds later and he says, I don't feel anything. I said, that's not where you're supposed to put it. So we're literally describing the product that is applied to a woman um, prior to engaging in activity, and he is disappointed or is using it as a, a hand lotion, or it's like a sanitizer. It, it, not, it, it did not work as hand lotion. I mean, we got it. It is such a fun business, and you have to have a sense of humor to do this. But the stories are endless in terms of the things that people said to us in meetings. And I used to go home and, and, and say to my family, you know, I feel like I was just in some middle school locker room. And then I would feel bad because I think middle school locker rooms were more mature than some of the conversations we were having. Well, so I'd be in meetings where people are talking about their sexual exploits with business partners in the room, male, female, it didn't matter, but talking about things that, you know, clearly weren't appropriate for the topic that we were discussing, which was building a business. Well, it's reflective, I think, of the banking culture. I would say, I, I think you're, I've gotten to know you a bit in the past couple of years. I think you have a, the perfect personality to go do this because it, it is an uncomfortable topic, unfortunately, for people to talk about, particularly in banking circles, because it's a kind of more buttoned up, you know, uh, circle of people anyway. Uh, how, you you know you mentioned the statistics that thirty percent of men is an eight eighty billion you know eight billion dollar market and then the math for women would suggest that it's bigger and maybe this reflects where what what channels I watch say on TV but and I'm a sports nut I can't turn on a golf tournament without being inundated by Viagra or Cialis commercials uh, I mean and or and I watch a lot of tennis and you see similar. Is it now more prevalent on, say, female-directed, uh, you know, media outlets, or is it still not really a channel that's getting the being addressed the same way? Because I mean, you can't escape for it if you're a guy; it's everywhere. Right. 
So I would like to say that we've made some progress and there are some examples. Um, the One of the primary ways we built the business is when we approached 100 different media outlets, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not paraphrasing, I'm uh, literally at least 100 outlets, wow. whether it was um, websites, radio, TV, network, cable, underground cable, whatever it was, 95% or 99% of the stations said, no, we don't cover that category, when clearly they did. Because they're doing now, it for the guys. I mean, they were doing it for right. Viagra, Cialis, and Oftentimes people would say, well, yeah. Well, your product is, you know, is not RX. If they had said that to us, we, you know, we could have had a conversation about the clinical support that we had and, you know, the published scientific paper that we had. Um, but they said, we don't cover this category. And so we have so many different experiences where, you know, we couldn't get initially lifetime to advertise this product. You know, I don't think any 12 year old boys are watching lifetime at 8.30 p.m when you could have a Viagra Levitra Cialis commercial on at 5 p.m. on CBS during the Super Bowl. Sure. So there are still a lot of challenges still to this day. The companies that I work with and the companies that, you know, where I, I speak to the founders regularly, Facebook still doesn't take advertising for things like this. Why, Rachel? Does, I don't you know, get I mean, why? I mean, th that's so fuddy-duddy. I mean... I don't understand. Well, the answer would be, and I tell this story all the time, and people say to me, I don't believe it. I don't believe this actually happened. I don't believe it's still happening. You know, these norms that they have are, are you know, this violate, that violate some policy they have. And it's so fascinating because if you look at Facebook and how powerful a tool it is and continues to be, you know, at any given time, they were enabling terrorists to be on there, you know, pedophiles to be on there. The range of things that got through, you know, which I think lots of people would agree in, in general conversation to be inappropriate, you know, discussions of anything around female satisfaction is very difficult. When you, you talk about disease and curing a disease, even if it's related to a woman and, and her reproductive system, that is different. But the concept of arousal and enjoyment is terrifying to people. Well, the irony I just want to give an example that. So a couple of years ago, there was an article um, on the cover of the New York Times Magazine section. So, you know, the real deal called Unexcited, is there a pill for that? And the article was all about, at that point, um, the some of the products under development for improving female desire. And the article made this statement, which I'll never forget, which is that this was one of the few categories where there was concern that the product worked too well lest there be, and now I'm doing those air quotation marks, <laughs> sex crazed binges of infidelity. So the article actually said that there is concern that if a product in the arousal or satisfaction space for women worked too great, too well, that there would be pandemonium in the streets. And, you know, my reaction, and I've said this many times and I've written about it is I was not aware that the streets were filled with chaos since men are running around with four hour erections. The point of that story is just to suggest that there is some underlying foundational Sexism. pervasive systemic discomfort with female sexuality. Um, and there are so many amazing entrepreneurs doing things about it now. So there are lots of entrepreneurs in the menstruation space, whether they're coming out with products with new um, distribution models where you can customize, you know, when you get your products and what is in that category or making them with new um, 
new materials that have different absorption techniques or different technology, we're getting the, the conversations are getting much more interesting. And there's tons of research that says that the lack of comfort, even the inability to know the right terms for your own um, genitals results in some major self-esteem issues. I don't focus on this in the course of my work, but mm -hmm. there are lots of millennials who, you know, say, let's take back the period. Let's make girls comfortable with this. You know, let's make sure that they understand that their bodies are not shameful, that their bodies can do these amazing things and that their bodies can feel these amazing things. But we have a long, long, long way to go before that's a common conversation. Well, the ironies here are, okay, most, a lot of content on TV is way worse than the subject matter of the ads. I mean, if you look at what the garbage that's on so many of the channels, um, I find it ironic that, you know, ads around something like this would be still taboo. I find it even more ironic that it would be taboo around uh, at channels that are female-oriented like Lifetime Movie Network, uh, or, or LMN, I guess they're calling it now, given that we ultimately did strike a deal with them, but it Good. was a long haul. It took a long time. Um, yeah. So, so. And uh, to your original point, a lot of the channels, um, and I don't necessarily just mean TV channels, I mean sure. media channels and yep. communication channels, are not available. But to this day, they're not available. And you made a point about the content and other commercials. You know, there are the, the good side of this story, as, as frustrating as this part gets, is it gives me a lot to talk about in my work and a lot to write about. So there are, you know, commercials where they're simulating, you know, copulation. We had a talking head talking about what the issue was. We didn't say any body parts. We didn't simulate any sexual acts. You know, at certain points, we were talking to different media companies, especially the networks, where they said, well, take out the word sex, take out sexual, take out arousal. And so by the time you do that, you know, no one has any idea what you're selling. Because you're like selling cereal? Um, what is this? I mean, yeah. It could be anything. You know, fill in the blank. Right. Amazing in, uh, you know, 2017 that uh, even with uh, media channels that are being run by female executives, that this would still effectively be a taboo subject. It's kind of silly. But they're incredible. Yeah, we are making some progress. It's not, it's not you know, it's not gloom and doom. And, and part of the focus of the book is focusing on the people people who have turned lemons into lemonade and are doing amazing things and have, you know, taken over the world in social media and figured out a way to get their message out and are getting real responses from customers. Um, it's just not a direct, you know, most businesses aren't linear. They're just a couple of idiosyncrasies in this one that I, in this space that I haven't seen in the other businesses that I've worked in. Out of curiosity. Uh, so, uh, you exited Simpre, correct? Just describe the exit from Sempre. Did you sell into a larger conglomerate? Did you sell it off into a private equity firm? Like how did, how was it structured out of curiosity? So we sold the business to a, um, a specialty pharmaceutical company that has and had a foothold in male sexual health mm -hmm. and was ex wanted to expand their portfolio and include more products for women. And interestingly, one of the reasons that strategically they made sense is their business model in large part is focused on building um, distribution relationships around the globe and focusing on growing the product and the businesses um, ex-US as much as anything else. So the, the exit made a lot of sense 
because the growth opportunities outside the U.S., given that we're not, you know, transforming our culture overnight, are much more prevalent. And so the company that um, ours was sold to is really focused and has done an amazing job building these distribution relationships around the world um, so that people have access to the product. And when so it's you... a different business model. Mm -hmm. and... uh, it was at the end of 2013. End of 2013. Okay. Uh, before we kind of move on to the next chapter, um, I always like to extract lessons for our audience because so many of our audience are start true startups and some early stage entrepreneurs. So regardless of being a female or a male entrepreneur, if you could extract a handful of lessons about the capital raise process or more abstractly about, you know, knowing when to pivot. I thought it was brilliant how you pivoted your pitch. You know, some lessons to be learned from this really challenging situation. And then maybe more specifically, some lessons specifically for female entrepreneurs as well. Okay. So in my family, uh, we, we always watch these, you know, come from behind sports training movies with my dad. I have an, uh, one sister and, you know, we were both pretty sporty um, when we were younger. So, you know, any Rocky movie, any training movie, anything where, you know, you saw the training scene and, you know, Rocky's running up the, you know, <laughs> in a Russian winter running up, you know, Rocky four. Um, but one of our favorite movies, which is sort of funny that when I describe it, it won't sound like a family appropriate movie was the original rollerball in 1976 with James Conn. Oh, no, and the sport on. they were playing. That was playing. a huge Disney family movie, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What I described. Yes, huge Disney family movie. The game was men um, on roller skates with spiked gloves and helmets, and men on motorcycles played to get this ball um, into a hole, very generally described, around a track. And the game was over when the other team was dead, literally. So, you know, now you could see why it was such a popular Disney film. But before every match, the coach or the referee would announce the rules and he'd say no timeouts, no substitutions. And that was just a mantra that my dad instilled in us, which is there's no one who's going to take your place. It's not that there aren't people on the bench who could help you, but that you have to get out there every day, whatever you're doing, and work as hard as you can for as long as you can. And when you feel like you're going to collapse, you go home, you do what you need to do, and then you come back the next day and do it again. And you sort of play to the death. And we never thought of it as morbid. You know, I still think of it as inspirational. So that is something that's always been foundational to how I think about approaching life, you know, my personal life, my professional life, you put it all out there, you do everything you can think of, you know, get into the office or and do one or two things every day that'll move your business forward, work as hard as you can and come back the next day and you need to show up. No timeouts, no substitutions. So that just is something that's always guided how I think in general, um, specifically in terms of raising money or, or becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, someone had given us very good advice early on that says, you know, being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart. And, and I think that's true. I, I always hear people give, you know, give entrepreneurs advice, you know, jump right in, do this, do that. You know, you have to consider it in the context of your life. If jumping right in and going without a salary for six months, then maybe it's not a good decision for you. So figure out that you're doing something that you like. Um, the second piece is building a business or raising money. In my experience, in my own businesses and observing other people, is always takes longer and is always harder 
than it looks and is generally more expensive. You know, there are very few businesses, even the ones that are, are name brands today, that, you know, are just a straight hockey stick up from, you know, the day they open their doors and say we're open for business. Despite all the pitch decks that show the gigantic hockey stick, yes. The gigantic hockey stick. And and I think most people who have built businesses or been in businesses would say, you know, maybe they weren't at the verge of having the door shut. But, you know, there certainly were periods in the course of their business and their business life um, where, you know, you didn't know how you're going to get through that phase. So that's the first thing. It takes longer um, than you think. The second is, for me, this works, is you can never lose your sense of humor. It is, you know, I don't know if you've seen the airplane movies where, you know, the guy is jumping around saying, I picked the wrong day to give up sniffing glue. You know, <laughs> running an, an entrepreneurial venture, you really can't lose your sense of humor. It is hard. You know, I've heard people say many times, and this one personally drives me crazy, um, when it's work you love, it doesn't feel like work. I do work I love. Some days it feels like work. Some hours it feels like work. Right. Sometimes you're doing things that you don't enjoy doing. So going in with clear expectations um, and never losing your sense of humor is critical. And the other part of that is no matter how prepared you are, something unexpected would happen. Something unexpected will happen. Whether it's, you know, for us, I never thought that we would have a product that was safe, that was approved, that had had great commercial, um, had great um, satisfaction from the customers who were using it. And we wouldn't be able to talk about it. It would be like the greatest secret on earth that, you know, only we knew and we had to find other ways to discuss it. And every business that I've ever seen and any business person that I've ever had the privilege of talking to describes unforeseen circumstances that affect their business. You know, think of I've heard of businesses where they were in manufacturing and during Sandy, um, Superstorm Sandy, their inventory got eliminated and, and wiped out. You don't plan for that. I mean, most people don't plan for catastrophic events, but stuff happens and you have to be nimble and um, you have to sort of, again, show up. The other piece which relates to all that is because it's generally harder and takes longer and is more expensive and because unforeseen things happen, you really do have to take care of, of yourself. And, you know, I'm not going to say you have to do yoga every day or, you know, drink kale or, you know do anything specific, but you have to find ways that for you lower your stress level. So whether it's exercising, whether it's watching, um, you know, housewives, whatever it is, whether it's being with a friend, whether it's sitting in a dark room, you have to have some way that you can rejuvenate a healthy because our, as much as we think, yeah, as much as we think our storehouses of energy are endless. Um, many entrepreneurs get to the point where they say, you know, I'm close to running on empty. And it's hard to come back from running on empty. So my strategy has always been, you know, you might be running on fumes, but never get to the place where the yellow light is on because that's, then you might be stuck in the middle of a highway and have to push the, you know, push the car uphill. Look, I, I have a couple of questions. I mean, uh, obviously, given that I do this podcast and I spend so much of my time involved with entrepreneurship and early stage companies, I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurs and I want to see them succeed, which is one of the reasons we do this show to share knowledge with them. But I do, as a person who came out of a corporate environment and got a lot of skill training and uh, really some, you know, uh, tr uh, business, cultural, social training 
for well over a decade and then decided to do stuff more entrepreneurial, I have concerns about cultural of, of entrepreneurship we have right now. I think it's super cool that we have so many young people who want to dive in and join a startup. But my concerns, and I'm curious to get your thought about this and not pontificate, but my concern is that the great part about it is they get it, they, they get to go in and wear a lot of hats. Uh, I also think, it, sadly, it's a little glamorized in some of the media, et cetera. 99-plus percent of these things are going to fail. Uh, right. And, you know, 1 in 10,000 startups actually get true venture capital. I'm not talking about friends and family money, but I'm talking about, like, a seed series round. Only, like, 1 in 10,000 actually, mm-hmm. actually do it. No one talks about that statistic. And so uh, when you say that it's not for the faint of heart, I, I think it's a huge understatement. I mean, if you're not willing to start a startup and fund it through solely friends and family in your own pocket and work it at night and working, like, at night on a day job and doing it on the weekends – I don't think you should do it uh, if, you're, if you're a founder. I mean, I think it'll be – it has the potential to be the most rewarding thing you ever do. I always tell people you cannot imagine the happiness on the other side of the door that you haven't walked through. It's impossible to recognize. <laughs> it's, 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 impo- it's, impo- it's impossible to imagine – I mean, you could say you can dream, but you can't really feel how much it is. So you should be brave enough to do it. On the other hand – the length of time you'll walk after you've gone through that door to get that happiness is way, way, way longer and harder than people imagine. Am I, am I uh, being too pessimistic? Am I the only one that has some concerns about this? I mean, it's really tough. You know, everything you said is true. And I think if you speak to a hundred entrepreneurs, you'll get a different opinion. You know, for my money, I think it's valuable to have some experience and have some fundamental skills and understanding of a business before, you try to run one. You know, that being said, there are plenty of examples of very high profile people who have, you know, limited experience of any kind who have built enormous successes. I think it's a really a game of probability. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I personally think it's more helpful to have some experience. I personally think it's more helpful to have some sort of financial safety net if you can find one. But there is no replacement for the drive. And if you have that, that overcomes you know, maybe some real, some seriously realistic hurdles. I don't think there's one model. Um, I don't think there's one person who's the easiest to fund. Uh, but I do think that you can't go into it without your eyes open. Jeez. And it could be the most exciting and the most terrifying and the hardest and the best thing that you've ever done all in one day, sometimes all in one hour. It's way harder than it's portrayed. It's also can be way more gratifying than people realize, but it is not for the faint of heart, as you very well said. Um, I want to change topics a little bit back to raising capital. And uh, there's been a lot of articles recently about the culture of sexual harassment in the VC world. And I'm curious, you know, somebody who's dealt so much with the media and and any of us in our everyday uh, lives realize that a topic gets popular in the media for a while is it, but you've actually you know been in this world raising money in a uh around you know in a sensitive subject did you experience this or is this a is this just a moment in time or is this a is this a real problem then it's good that it's being addressed i think it's a systemic problem um we're, we're looking at some huge egregious horrible examples um which need fixing I think there's subtle things going on all the time, every day, 
and have been for years, you know, how we choose to deal with it or how a female entrepreneur chooses to manage it, you know, is often a personal decision. This is not new. Mm. None of this is new. You know, the, the, the huge media coverage is new and helpful and important to have a conversation, but ask any woman who's been in business, you know, for some period of time, everybody, not everybody, many, 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 many people would be able to describe an experience that seemed to cross any boundaries that they would deem acceptable. I mean, beyond a mild pass, something really gross. You know, sometimes it's pay discrimination. Sometimes it's outright sexual harassment. Sometimes it's not being taken seriously. Some, you know, they, they don't all rise to the same level of egregiousness. But everybody that I know, you know, I have a group of friends from business school at, you know, lots of people have been sexually harassed or inappropriately treated in a, in a work environment. So I think it's great that the conversation is starting. I think it's amazing to see the power of what one engineer at Uber can do. Hmm. I think that's a really exciting part of the conversation to give people power who don't feel like they have power. I mean, that woman, Susan Fowler started an enormous cultural national, if not international conversation. What's more powerful than that? And hopefully it leads to real change. You know, the, the interesting thing about the conversation that we're having today is, you know, we are a progressive country, uh, you know, even though and sometimes we kind of beat ourselves up as Americans. If you travel around the world, we have a lot to be very, very, very proud about. But this also shows that, you know, even in progressive areas of our economy that deal with cutting edge technologies and entrepreneurship, et cetera, there's some old habits that still need to change. And my approach to all this has really been, you're better prepared to understand the reality you're walking into. If you walk into a room and you are not prepared for dynamics that make you uncomfortable, then when they present themselves, you're not going to know how to handle it. So, you know, there's, I am not a, a big believer in complaining about what's going on say, you, you as much as I am. You don't strike me as somebody who's chairing their own pity party. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, I don't think it's a good business strategy. I'm not, I'm not saying that people never feel that way. There's a very big difference between how you feel and how you communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, going back to the earlier discussion we had about fundraising. Yeah, it, it, it is demoralizing. There's no question when you can't get people's attention, but my focus and a lot of the brilliant people that I've seen do amazing things is on, okay, how am I getting from here to there? Well, the other good thing that's coming out of this and has been coming for quite some time because, you know, people like you, entrepreneurs who later turned into investors or investors who are familiar enough with the space, you know, the the growth, creation and expansion of women focused, you know, funds, uh, either for the social purpose of helping women or for just the sheer economics that, you know, Startups that have women at the founder level or the C level tend to outperform those that don't, you know, is fantastic. I mean, obviously, there's Golden Seeds and 37 Angels and others that were founded in kind of your backyard in the New York area. But, you know, you've got the jump, Mm -hmm. you've got the jump fund out of, you know, Chattanooga, which is a, you know, reasonable sized fund. You've got Marsha Daywood, who's on the board of the Angel Capital Association, who's got three or four different vehicles that she's doing, and a couple of them are focused on women. There's some really cool things that are happening because they've seen these experiences and realized, you know what, we can create an environment where it's not necessary, but we still want to make money. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, making money has to be part of the discussion or you don't get anyone's attention. 
Yeah, there's a social component, but people want to, you know, you know, it's an investment decision too. So, but even when there's a social component, you need the business to generate enough cash to. They they have to be businesses, and I these think sometimes women get underestimated because there is a yeah there is a social component that is being taken care of out of the proceeds of a business. Earlier in the show, you'd mentioned that you're writing a book. That's so awesome. I'm very excited to hear that. Tell us a little bit more about it. The book is really about highlighting the amazing creativity and perseverance and just sense of will that so many entrepreneurs are demonstrating and building businesses in the broadest area of female health. So female health and wellness, sexual health, reproductive health, arousal, fertility, infertility, menstruation, and just not only sharing my experiences, but learning from these other entrepreneurs about the challenges they faced and the amazing things they had to come up with to move their businesses forward. And I felt that there was a lot to be learned in, you know, especially when we were talking earlier about you never know what to expect because you can prepare for everything and then something happens that you didn't expect, you know, whether it's difficulty in fundraising, whether it's inability to access the media channels that you need, um, whether that's traditional or social or online, having issues with production, lots of people have them, just the general inability um, in certain parts of this conversation around female sexual health to actually even have a conversation. What did you and say? we had talked earlier about some of the... I'm sorry, I interrupted. apologize. Go ahead. No, no, excuse me. As we were talking earlier, you know, I shared some examples of just how silly the reaction is when you're talking about a business, um, any of these businesses of the um, entrepreneurs I've been lucky enough to speak with, where they're solving big problems. In many cases, they haven't had, you know, any kind of major developments or steps forward in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, whether it's a new approach to menstruation, a new distribution model, um, condoms made from different sustainable, healthier materials, um, whatever the case may be, there are all kinds of interesting ways that people are getting around this really cultural roadblock to having a conversation. And what I really like about these conversations is, you know, it's not woe is me. It's like, here's the problem, and I'm going to drive right through it. Watch me. <laughs> and the creativity that comes from having, you know, challenges to your business when you know you really have something. You've shared some pretty incredible anecdotes today, and I've known you for several years, and there's many more. And I suspect that even more even in the book. Uh, how long has the book been in development? So I came up with the idea. Um, someone had given me the title in an entirely different context. Um, I was at a conference and a, a person said to me, who I, I really had thought had been saying fascinating, interesting things. She said, Rachel, you know, you talk about leadership and entrepreneurship and women in business and female sexual health. Everybody's talking about entrepreneurship and leadership. Why don't you talk about the aspect of it that really differentiates you and the part that you really focus on why don't you talk about orgasmic leadership? <laughs> and I said at the time, you know, I love the title. And I always do wind up talking about female sexual health. But people hire me because they want to talk in general about business. And then they enjoy the stories that I weave in about this particular category. People aren't comfortable saying, Rachel, come here and talk about, you know, come to our podium or come to our event and talk about, you know, 
female sexual health and arousal. So I had this name milling in my head. And then all of a sudden, it occurred to me um, towards the end of last summer that it was a name for a book. So I put together an email. I started reaching out to entrepreneurs that I had worked with as clients or that, that I met in the course of building my own businesses and have over the past uh, year or so conducted you know, a couple dozen interviews and making progress on writing the book. And I hope to have a, a, a really strong draft complete by the end of the year and published early in the following year. That's amazing. Uh, have you written a book before? I know it's a huge challenge. My brother's written several. I have never written a book before, but I do a lot of writing uh -huh. um, in general, whether it's for Inc. or Huffington Post. Uh, I really enjoy the process, mm -hmm. but a book is an entirely different undertaking than writing a 500 or 700 page article. That's a big mountain um, across. So I've always been a writer for, yeah, you know, I've always been a writer for um, fun and pleasure and in the past several years professionally, but again, a book is this huge thing. And I'm sure you've had this experience and so many entrepreneurs I've met have said this to me. People tell me I have a book in here, you know, people, and I, I've had the same experience and getting from that to actually putting it down on proverbial paper takes a big shove. So I feel like momentum is on my side and I'm, I'm really making progress and it's really exciting and it's different than it's different than building a business because in, in my experience so far, it allows you to reflect, it allows you to speak to other people, reflect on what that experience has told you. And in, in order to get out any good content, you really have to spend a lot of time processing. And one of the biggest challenges I think many entrepreneurs experience, myself included, is having that thinking time, which everybody would agree is the most critical, but the pace of the business and the pace with which you're trying to make decisions and move your business forward doesn't give you that luxury. So to a certain extent, writing a book is much more um, relaxing <laughs> for me than, you know, the daily rigors of building a business. That being said, I also am able to spend a lot more time building my businesses than I am writing the book. So it becomes a trade-off uh, all the time. Well, kudos for you to do it. I've, I've, my brother's written several, and I've seen what it takes. And any good writer knows that, you know, quality writing is incredibly time-consuming. And uh, you know, I give you credit for having the guts to do it. And as I said earlier, you've only shared a fraction of uh, your stories that you've even shared with me, and I'm sure even great ones are um, in the book. You'll have to let us know when it's getting ready to come out so we can help you publicize it, please. Oh, absolutely. And I, as always, appreciate your support and encouragement uh, for my entrepreneurial efforts. And <laughs> you do add so much energy to the entrepreneurs that you come into contact with. And I, I've seen you, you know, in action on stage um, at events and you really you walk the talk, which is wonderful. You're very kind. So, Rachel, real quickly, as we wrap up, because I know you're hopping to yet another meeting. You're always so busy. Uh, can you tell the group quickly about Spark Solutions for Growth and how our audience could get in touch with you? Sure. Pretty easy. Uh, Spark Solutions for Growth is our website. Mm -hmm. um, all of my social media handles are some combination of Rachel Braun Sherrill or RB Sherrill, S-C-H-E-R-L. You can also look up Vagipreneur um, and you will find me. And I really focus, as I've said earlier, on helping companies, large and small, with a focus on female health, build their businesses, find their targets, figure out a way to motivate them, communicate, position, 
build businesses, build partnerships to make sure that these amazing products and services that people are developing at rapid fire speed are available. So people have the choice as to how they want to take care of their, very broadly speaking, wellness. You've shared a lot of your insight and knowledge with our audience today, Rachel, and I really appreciate that. I think male or female, uh, the lessons that uh, people can learn from listening to your stories are incredible, and we're so glad that you were kind enough to share your time with our audience and your stories today. Thank you so much for being a guest on Supex Radio. And thank you always, as I said, for your encouragement of me and for uh, the entrepreneurs um, in the broader community in general. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.